I was kicked out of school at the age of 15 and went straight onto a building site. But through my education, I can now proudly sit here at the age of 53 years old, traveling the world countless times and say that I am an incredibly educated man. But I get my education from my mistakes and failures. And I rejoice at them. Because every time something goes wrong, I've just got a little smarter. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr. And today I bring you Steve Sims. Do you get motivation, clarity, or inspiration from the Success Through Failure podcast? Then don't be so selfish. Share the motivation with your friends. Go to jimharshawjr.com slash share, and there you'll find a simple page with just three buttons. One to share the podcast on Twitter, one for Facebook, and one for LinkedIn. Click any of the buttons, and you'll have the option to either share the pre-written tweet or message or rewrite your own. That's it. Super simple. It'll just take a few seconds, unless you're selfish and you want to keep all of this awesome inspiration to yourself. Go ahead and let your friends in on the secret. They'll thank you. And if nothing else, you'll have something cool to talk about the next time you get together. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash share. Steve is a unique individual by every stretch. Uh, you're going to get that from this episode. Man, he's such a fun guy to have a conversation with. But he's a huge thinker, which is why I wanted to have him on the show, because so many of us think about these big goals, these big hopes, these big dreams that we have for our lives, and we're a little bit afraid of, of going for it and attacking them. Well, the bigger, the scarier, the crazier the request that Steve gets, the more lit up he is about attacking it and making big things happen. He doesn't have any pre-qualifications to make these happen, but he is a guy with a, a big mindset that allows himself to actually dream big and actually brings these ideas that his clients ask him to pull off. He brings them to life. Things like getting access to the Vatican, things like singing on stage with Journey, things like uh, going down to see the wreck of the Titanic. He pulls these things off, lots of these things, and he talks about not only the mindset that goes into this, because make no mistake, there's a mindset that allows you to actually believe that something like this is possible, a mindset allowed that allows you to deal with the inevitable failures and setbacks and no's and closed doors in order to be able to pull stuff like this off. You're going to face a lot of that, but also the tactics. He shares one specific tactic, especially that is really game-changing for you and me in terms of how you think about moving forward and making big things happen in your life. So a little bit about his official bio. Uh, do you know anybody who's worked with Sir Elton John or Elon Musk? Send people down to see, like I said, the wreck of the Titanic or been in closed museums in Florence, Italy for a private dinner party and then had Andre Bocelli serenade them while they're eating their pasta. Well, now you do. That's Steve Sims. He's been called the real life Wizard of Oz by Forbes magazine and by Entrepreneur magazine. He's a best-selling author. His book is called Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. He's a sought-after coach and speaker at a variety of networks and groups and associations. Uh, he's also spoken at the Pentagon and actually a couple times at Harvard. And as always, you can grab the action plan from this episode and all of my episodes. Go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. You can get the action plan from all of my episodes. Or if you, know, if you hear something you like, but you don't have a chance to write down, make sure you grab your free copy of the action plan. Let's get to my conversation with Steve Sims. Steve, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. 
can you please explain to the audience what the hell it is that you do? Because I can't. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So there's, there's two avenues. 20 plus years ago, I suppose I invented the world's first experiential concierge firm. Bottom line of it was, as a poor lad, I wanted to hang around with rich people. So I wanted to know what rich people wanted. And it was things like parties, getting to the front line of events, getting backstage, meeting celebrities. So basically, along the way, I've done things like getting people married in the Vatican by the Pope, closed down museums for a private dinner party in Florence, and then had Andrea Bocelli come in and serenade him during the pasta. I've had him backstage, uh, backstage and on stage of everything from any kind of musical event you can think of, any kind of fashion week you can think of, from Paris, Milan to New York. You know, I'm the guy that uh, Forbes called the real-life Wizard of Oz. If you can dream it, but more importantly, afford it, I'm the guy that makes it happen. And since uh, Bluefish in the Art of Making Things Happen, my book came out about two years ago. I coach, I speak, and I have a community that I just get people to just ask more of themselves and try to go for stupid, try to go for the ridiculous things that everyone thinks is impossible until you've done it. You mentioned you grew up as a poor lad, wondering what the rich people do, wondering what that was like. Didn't that just make you sort of like think that this is out of reach? I mean, you didn't even grow up in that world. You didn't realize what was even possible. No. Okay. So you you questioned and answered it in the same statement there. You see, bearing in mind, if anyone that can see me realizes I'm not 22. So I lived in a world before Insta gurus and before every social platform told everyone how inadequate my life was compared to theirs. So I grew up with ignorance. And my my wife, who I've uh, we celebrate thirty three years this Friday, she said my superpower is ignorance. I didn't know it was impossible. I didn't know I shouldn't be allowed to just walk up to that person and, and ask to go backstage. I didn't have any of the fear. I didn't understand any of the protocol. I didn't understand any of the parameters that we put on ourselves to not ask for what we want but we settle for what we think is achievable. I didn't have any of those things. So I was an ignorant, stupid child growing up that literally just went, I'm poor, he's not, why? And then I would ask him. I'd say, hey, you know, what, what do you do? You know, how are you able to live this? I wouldn't be so rude to go, hey, how are you rich? Because let's be blunt, if I got five people together, each one of them is going to have a different vision of what rich is. And growing up, I never had money. Now, what I didn't realize was how wealthy I was because I learned about hard work. I learned about keeping my word. I learned about ethics and etiquette. I learned all about that. I learned about negotiation. You know, so my younger lad, I thought I was very poor. It wasn't until my 20s that I realized, and even today, how wealthy my upbringing was that leads me to the wealth I have now. Wealthy how? How was your upbringing wealthy? I realized there was never a night that I was worried I wasn't going to be fed or tucked in and that I wasn't going to be warm and that the the TV wouldn't switch on and off. So, you know, my electric bill was never being turned off. You know, we didn't have new cars. The first takeaway we ever had was when I was like 18 years old. Okay. So we didn't have money to be, you know, just splashing out on weird things. Once a year, we had steak on my parents' anniversary, and it was the ropiest piece of cheap-ass meat I'm sure my mum could find, <laughs> but we made a big deal of it. But the daft thing was, 
while I was looking at it in monetary context, when I looked at it in wealth, I was understanding how to keep my word. My dad was taking me out on the building site and going, this is how you negotiate for the deal. This is how you get the deal. And if we didn't get the deal, he'd be like, why didn't we get the deal, son? Let's analyze this. You know, why didn't we get that job proposal to be able to do the guy's patio? So it wasn't any massive stuff that we were doing, but he was raising me to understand the dynamics of uh, a man keeping his word. And that, sadly, today is so much in demand and so much missing from the amount of people that I meet. Why do this, Steve? I mean, not not in the sense, and I want to ask this question, it's sort of the second level of the question, not why do this as in like kind of how you got into it, which I'm also curious about, but why do this at the deeper level? What is it about creating these absurd experiences that most people don't even think are possible? Why do that? Well, again, you just answered it. We're entrepreneurs, okay? And so we love it. The easiest way to make an entrepreneur go bankrupt is say, hey, I bet you can't do this for 10 bucks. And then they'll spend 10 grand doing it and charging you 10 bucks. So as entrepreneurs, we like to bite the bone. And sometimes we will bite the wrong bone or hold on too tight when it's not good for us. For me, the second that you thought it couldn't be done, I was all in. And the funny thing is, I'm not a people person. I really am not. I'm terrible. You know, I'm a big, ugly lad with like, you know, tattoos and piercings. I'm not born to be warm and fuzzy. And I really don't care what you watched on TV last night. But I'm very challenge driven. So if you go, oh, I'd really like to be able to do this with Guns N' Roses, but it's impossible. Whoa, now you've got my intention. Now I'm going to go and make it happen and throw it down your throat that I made it happen. And that's what, that's what it was. I, I found that I was very challenge-driven. I wanted to do things that I conceive why you would put the parameter on it. Like, you can say to people, and you can try this. Yeah, you can test your friends. Say to them, hey, if you could do anything, what would it be? And they will say something like, oh, you know, I'd like to um, you know, play piano with Sir Elton John. And instead of stopping there, they will then just naturally drivel on, and they'll be like, but I can't play the piano and I don't know Elton John. I don't know how I'd get hold of him. Why would he want to talk to me? We, for some reason, spend longer giving you the excuses why we can't do something or why it's not possible than focusing on the request itself. You have no idea if you can do it, but you will decide, you, you will decide whether or not you're even going to try. And that I just couldn't understand. I think that's where my stupidity came into it. I'll be like, why are you doing this? In fact, I'll give you an example. You know, raised up in England, I was at a pub and I was <laughs> doing the pocket coin check. You know that time when you, you haven't got a lot of money, you stick your hands in your pocket and you're counting the money you've got through your fingers in your pocket to know how many pints of beer you can have. You know, <laughs> it's like the grocery lottery. You, you can actually add up everything that's going into your basket so you know your credit card won't be declined because you know you have like only $23 left on that card or something. I walked into a bar with two of my mates and we're, we're doing the pocket counting and we worked out we could afford between three of us, two and a half beers. You know, it was, it was that kind of stupidity. While we were in there, there was a guy at the other end of the bar and he was like the local, oh God, he was like the local Richard Branson. He owned a supermarket and he owned a gas station. 
And in my area, this made that guy the, the most powerful, you know, Warren Buffett and, and Jeff Bezos all rolled into one. He was the richest guy in our town and quite openly everyone bloody knew it. Now, I had heard about this guy because he always used to date all the pretty girls and he had a nice car, you know, that kind of guy. There's always one of those in the village. And as I walked in, one of my fellas, uh, one of my friends turned around with that so-and-so, and I can't even remember what the guy's name was. And all of a sudden, without missing a beat, and I don't understand why, but I went and spoke to him. And in my head, subconsciously, I'm in a pub with poor people, and there's this one guy that's not. Who do I want to hang out with? Who do I therefore want to communicate with? Who is possibly going to help me get to a point where I stop doing the pocket shuffle and I can afford anything I like? So I started talking to him and he bought me a beer, which I thought I'd just been given a trophy from the Olympics because now I didn't have to pay for a beer. He bought me a beer. We carried on conversing. I turned around because I thought my two buddies were next to me and I couldn't understand why they were so quiet. And, you know, those two clowns were stood up against a wall at the opposite end of the bar. And I couldn't understand. I couldn't comprehend. Why are you there? Two poor lads that can't afford another beer. And I'm here. Why did you choose to stand there and not choose to stand here? And it was those early moments that started making me think people react differently. People position themselves differently and from then on I was like I am never gonna miss an opportunity you know I'm never gonna let it go the classic M&M tune that he did you know I always strive for every you open the door slightly bang I'm I'm going through it not always been a wise idea made many mistakes in getting in the rooms I shouldn't but I've always taken every opportunity now you have a big personality Steve and I think there's probably some listeners saying, well, yeah, but you've got that personality. I don't. Is it a personality or is it a mindset? It's mindset. I think my personality has developed over the years because I've, I've done, you know, boastfully so many amazing things. And I've hung around with so many amazing people. And I've done the impossible so many times that I have got, I suppose, that arrogance and confidence. But, you know... They don't say yes to you straight off the bat. I've had many, many years of people saying no to me for the most ridiculous little things until I learned to define my question. And so it all came down to the mindset. You see, I'm sitting here in front of you now wearing a black T-shirt and jeans. That's all I wear whenever I'm working with anyone from like Michael Bloomberg, Donald Trump, Elton John. I have always been sitting in front of them with a black T-shirt and jeans. I was very comfortable in being me. But in the early stages, before I had, I suppose, the credibility and qualifications, a lot of people thought it was rude that I would turn up to a meeting in black T-shirt and jeans. And I, I would say to people, and again, not very etiquette, not very polite, I'm saying, look, I'll rephrase the word in. I'm not here to fudge you. I'm here to solve your problem. So stop worrying about what I look like and let's start focusing on what the problem is. And that kind of directness sometimes got me kicked out of a room. And more often, thankfully, got me brought in because of the clarity and the transparency, not authenticity. I think that's an act most cases. But I was easy to understand. This is a guy, he's rough around the edges, but he's here to get shit done. And that's what I wanted to be. I think a lot of people, it's easy to say, well, you have this, or you have this personality, or you have 
whatever, some excuse. People are looking for an excuse to say, well, I can't do that. I, you know, play piano with Elton John. Well, I can't do that because of blank. And sure, you have a personality. Well, Richard Branson has a different one and and Elon Musk has a different one and Steve Jobs had a different one. Like these are people who do big things. It was not it's not a personality thing. I just want to make that clear for the listener. Like like you have the capacity and the capability. Let me expand on that a little bit more. Please. You said that Elon Musk has a personality. No, he doesn't. I've worked with Elon <laughs> Musk a good few times and the guy is socially awkward and he doesn't care about what you think. The amount of times that Elon Musk has publicly failed and he has no care about your view on him, he cares about finishing the project, which was his vision. If you think that I'm here because of my personality, you can't paint the same brush onto Elon Musk because he got to where he is because of his vision and drive, not because of his startling personality. Right. Yeah. And it's, to be clear, I want to make sure I really understand, like everybody has a different personality. Not everybody has yeah. the same personality. It's not the personality that makes you successful. Correct. So what's behind it. It's the mindset. And when you say, Steve, to these big things that use the Elton John example or the Vatican, I mean, all these things that you've done, it's just, it's just absurd. When you start going down that path, I think what stops most people is the fear. Well, I'm probably going to fail is, is the thought that most people would have when you say, well, I'd love to play piano with Elton John on stage. Does this type of activity, this type of thing that you do, does this lead you to a lot of failure? Oh, yeah. See, it, will, it leads me to more failures than it does success. But let's pick on our buddy Elon for a second. You saw that he sent up a reusable space rocket and you saw that they had the fuel cells drop off because he worked out that one of the most expensive elements of a rocket was the fuselage and the fuel cells. And he worked out if he could save those and reuse them, he was cutting down an immense amount of cost, billions of dollars on per rocket. How many times did you see that rocket land on that floating platform, tip over, and then explode? How many times, just roughly? I saw uh, several times, but uh, I right. know it happened a lot more than, uh, than the, the success that we saw. When was the last time you saw it land? Just the one time that it did. Okay. The one time that was uh, the public time. It's not newsworthy anymore because he's got it mm. sussed. You know, the bottom line of it is, for some reason, humanity likes to laugh at the failures, okay? As soon as it's success, uh, we're bored with you now because you achieved it, you know? You're no longer one of us. You've now kind of like achieved something that we can't fathom, we can't relate to. So for me, I got so many failings, so many things went wrong, so many things hurt mentally, stressfully, financially, but I was always focused on, okay, where was the lesson I got from this? And how can I correct it? Because you, as you always say, you don't trip on the same curb twice. So if I can find out where something went wrong, either in my tone of voice, my presentation, the ask, the timing, if I can correct one of those and tweak it, you start getting less no's. And when you start getting less no's, it's like stubbing your toe. We've all stubbed our toe. We've all slammed our finger in a door. We've all hit our head on something. But if I ask you, what did that pain feel like? You can't tell me. You're going to say something like, oh, it hurts. But you can't remember the actual pain. 
You can't actually remember the emotion because our mind dulls it, nullifies it, and rids it out. When we fail at something, we should look at where the lesson is from there, not at the pain. And I think I've grown from the failures, from the pain. In fact, I've always said your greatest success comes from your darkest moments. It doesn't come from success. It comes from things going wrong that you can learn from. Hmm. Can you tell us about a time when you failed? There's something that sticks out in your mind, something that created that self-doubt that, that a lot of people deal with when they face failure? God, yeah. So when was the last time I failed? Uh, you know, give me until the end of the day and I'm sure I'll have a story. <laughs> I believe failure is growth on you trying to do what you you need to exercise on. So, you know, it could be a phone call didn't go well. It could be an email got rejected. It could be a speaking gig or a consultancy or trying to work with a client. Failure doesn't have to be an exploding rocket on the middle of the ocean. It can be a tiny, tiny little thing. Still needs to be analyzed, but I fail, I fail often, and I fail up. There's been a few that have been very pivotal for me. So I started doing this concierge work in like the 1990s. In 1997, and I've always been on motorcycles since a kid, always been on motorcycles. I do not own a car today. I have a whole bunch of motorbikes and I'm always on motorbikes. So in 1997, I had a deal with Ferrari, the Formula One team, and I was asked to do an event in Monaco. On this event, now bear in mind, I'd been doing what I was doing for like seven years. I had some of the richest people in the planet in my Rolodex or in my Franklin Filofax, if you remember those things. Sure. I had some of the richest people in the planet in there, and I was phoning them and chatting with them and faxing them because it was the 90s. You know, we were in constant contact. And I had this event. And whenever I saw people, whenever I was flying around the world, you wouldn't see me hiring a car. I'd rent a motorbike, you know, I'd rent a motorbike and ride up to him and can I walk into the office with a helmet in my hand? And that was always me. We came to Monaco and I think it was about three months prior to this event. And bearing in mind, a lot of my clients were coming to this event. I'd arranged that they were coming to it. And I suddenly thought to myself, shit, I can't go to Monaco as a biker. Look at me. And I splashed out on an expensive watch. I bought an Audemars Piguet Royal Oak Offshore. I bought a couple of tailored suits. I think maybe three or four, actually. And then I went out and I bought a Ferrari. Now, I got a deal because I was working for Ferrari at the time, but I bought a Ferrari. But you know the funny thing is? Not one of the items I've just mentioned I bought for me, I bought for you. I bought for you to be impressed with me. I bought so that you would find me more approachable, more, oh, he's got that watch. He must be of my status. And I went along to the event. And even today, I can't recall much of that event because I spent so much effort being somebody that I wasn't. We openly say that I never went. I never went to the best party that I threw. This alter ego did. And when the photographs came and here, you know, when you get home and you used to take the roll of film out the back of your camera, shove it in an envelope and, you know, yep. within the next three weeks to three years, you'd get your photos back. <laughs> so right. it was about a month after the party and I got these photographs. I'm looking for the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sultan of Brunei, Prince Albert, all of these people. I'm going through all of these pictures and I suddenly realized none of them had me in them. 
they had some tosser in a suit trying to show off his fancy watch, you know, trying to be someone that he wasn't. And I realized that I had seeded my own doubt and worse, I'd let it win. It destroyed the 1997 Formula One at Monaco for me. I didn't go there. So that was a massive failure. I went home. We sold the car within a month. <laughs> we hocked the watches and bought bikes. And basically, that was it. I was like, I am never ever. You don't want to deal with me because I look like this? Move on. We'll be fine. It's not offensive. I don't fit everyone's recipe. But I was certainly not going to convulse or work myself into a shape just to conform to what you think you need. This is what you get. If you like it, great. If you don't, we'll move on and we'll be fine. So that was probably one of my big pivotal, but I'll also give you another one, not as dramatic, not as name dropping, but I was a bricklayer. I mentioned to you earlier that my dad was a bricklayer. Well, I was actually, you know, learning to lay bricks with him. And there was a little job around the corner where this drunken driver had run into like this little garden wall and the garden wall needed to be repaired. So my dad said, oh, go down there. You know, he, he wants to have the garden wall done. I told him, you'll do it. I can't do it. So I went down there and I'm like, yeah, yeah, you need the garden wall done. Yeah, I'm like 17 years old, all cocky and that. Didn't know how to handle myself. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, yeah, you know, how much you go? And I told him how much I was going to charge. And he's like, all right, get it done this weekend. And I built the wall. Now that morning, I had to run down and pick up the parts. I had to pick up the bricks. I had to pick up the cement. I had to pick up some of the stuff to get rid of it. Then afterwards, I had to clean up. I had to rent a skip. I had to put all the rubbish in the skip. I had to get the skip picked up. It came to me that I'd charged the guy like 200 bucks to repair this tiny little wall. And it had cost me 250 bucks to actually build it. And I went to my dad and I said, to my dad, I said, dad, you know, I, I didn't plan for this. I didn't plan for the skip. I didn't plan for the cleanup. I didn't plan for that. It's cost me 250 bucks. How do I go down to the guy and tell him, because I've made no money. How do I tell him that I priced it a hundred dollars off and he owes me another hundred dollars? And we were in England, so it was pound. And um, he turned around and he said, you don't, you just got taught how to do accounting. And I lost it. You know, I, I lost the money, but I kept my word. And you know, the funny thing is that guy was so happy. He introduced me to someone else. Well, on the next guy, I was able to add a couple of extra pounds. So I started getting my money back. But the bottom line of it is I learned from a very, very young age that your word is your bond. And there's been many times in my life where I have priced it wrong, but you can never go back on a secondary price. So, you know, learn the value of your word. I also learned the value that I can't do accounting. <laughs> so quite simply, whenever I get the deal now, before I quote, I have a team that actually work it out for me and account it properly, building a, a surplus, and we, we quote accordingly. So it was a lesson on what I couldn't do. But you learn by doing. I mean, you wouldn't have learned that lesson without doing it. And you learn by executing. You can't, you can't sit in a corner in the dark in fear worried that, boy, if I take that next step, if I try to do that thing, if I try to, you know, quote that job, I might fail. Yeah, you might, but you're going to learn. You're, regardless, you're going to learn. And, and the next time you do it, you know, like you said, you're not going to trip over the same curb twice. Well, that's my education. You know, you come from academia, you come from, from colleges and universities and, and high education. I was kicked out of school at the age of 15 and went straight onto a building site. But through my education, 
I can now proudly sit here at the age of 53 years old, traveling the world countless times and say that I am an incredibly educated man, but I get my education from my mistakes and failures. And I rejoice at them because every time something goes wrong, I've just got a little smarter. Yeah. It sucks. Doesn't it? When you screw up, it sucks and and it hurts. And it's like, I messed that up. It's not fun. It's not something we seek out, but that's a normal part of the process. I imagine you you feel that, you experience that, you curse, you, you kick the dog maybe, and, and you get upset about it like the rest of us, but you have a perspective on it that I think helps you, Steve, move forward and do absurd things. So I can give you the answer to that in, a, in an actual complete example, if that's okay. Please. I had a client of mine, well, he's still a client of mine, and I, I coach And he was given a proposal here in Los Angeles. And he said to me, can you come with me? And I said, what do you want me to do? He said, well, I've got the directors. They're all going to meet me. I'm going to do this proposal. Can you come with me? And I said, I can't just walk into your meeting. You know, they're going to be looking at me thinking who I am. He said, well, uh, can you put a suit on and I can pretend you're my driver or something, but I'd really (laughs) like you to see me close this deal. And I was like, all right. So I did. I put a suit on and I sat in the corner like I was his security guard driver, like he bloody needed one. But he went on and did his proposal and everything was fantastic. And then it fell off and they declined the deal. And we got back in the car and we're driving down the road and he's all pissed off and angry. He lost the deal, blah, 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 blah. And he's all cursing. He went, oh, that was terrible. That was awful. That failed. That was horrible. It all went wrong. And as I'm driving, again, you've got to let that emotion come out, okay? Let it come out, okay? And then go, okay, did it all go wrong? So once he'd got out of his system, I said to him, did it all go wrong? And his first reaction was like, yeah, it did. I didn't get the deal. I said, well, no, that was the outcome you were looking for. But did it all go wrong prior to that? Like for a start, your email correspondence and your phone call correspondence got you in that room. So your your initiation of what it was there for you to solve worked. You knew what that pain point was. You pressed the appropriate buttons and they were willing to take time out of your day. Not just C-level. You had the big boys in that room. You had the director. So you had, you had exposed a problem that you were the solution to that the biggest boys in that company and the ladies wanted to hear about it. So all of that was success. So where did it go wrong? And so I said to him, contact her back because he was speaking with a central lady and say to her, hey, I respect your decision, but where did I lose you? Just to help me be better in the future, where did it go wrong? And just ask her that and shut up. So he did. And do you know what it was? It was the payment plan. Hmm. Right at the end, he said, we do this, 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 and we accept these terms as a payment plan to get us involved in your company. Now, every company has different financials, has different periods when it's doing its marketing. It budgets. So what he did was he said, where was it wrong? She said, you were too strict, or we felt that you were too strict and structured on your payment plan. We literally went with another company that was flexible. So what he did was the next time he actually went and pitched his product, when it got to the payment terms, he said, hey, 
Your company's probably got its own budgeting schedule. Our team will work with you on the best structure for you. And he got the deal. Now, here's something funnier that happened. The girl that looked after him the first time left, went for another company. The company had the same problem. She called him. He came in. He closed twice. Mm. Okay? So the bottom line of it is, yeah, shout, moan, drink a whiskey, and then just sit back and go, well, it didn't all go wrong. If it had all gone wrong, I'd have never even have got in the room. So where did it go right? Rejoice. Tick. Where did it go wrong? Now, let me focus on that. I always say, if you get a no, you've asked the wrong question or the wrong person. For the listener, I want you to reflect on this. I want you to understand that this is an after-action report. This is something that I've talked about on the podcast for a long time. This is the productive pause, hitting the pause button and asking yourself, what worked here? What went right? What went wrong? And actually evaluating as opposed to saying, yes, it was a, it was a total and complete failure. I should have spent two years and tens of thousands of dollars going to Harvard to get my MBA. No, you just got a lesson. You just got a huge lesson from your failure, whether that failure is an argument you got in with your spouse or a business deal that went wrong or anything else. Do the after-action report, evaluate objectively, let the emotion pass, but evaluate objectively, and then move forward with the, the new information that you have. And Steve, yep. I want to get into the how a little bit, and specifically your belief in your tactics for writing handwritten notes and sending people stuff in the mail. I thought it was just all about spamming people with email and, <laughs> and getting on social media and posting a bunch of tweets. No? Yeah, no, exactly. Well, the beautiful thing is, I need to say, yes, it is. You need to be spamming people with emails and you need to be doing the tweets because the more times you do that, it makes me look even further different. <laughs> I decided that if everyone was turning right, I wanted to turn left. So what were people doing that worked that they no longer do? And funny enough, the answer to that is a real scare one. They communicated. And they created a trigger. You see, you get a ton of emails every day that look exactly the same as everybody else's email. Okay. So I decided to go back in time and I joke around it with Jay Abraham, bring the 80s and 90s back. Okay. Where we didn't have emails. I will fax people. Okay. I will send them notes. And the beautiful thing is because you go to hotels, there's all that free stationery. So just write a little note and send it to people. Now, here's the beautiful thing. When was the last time you got a handwritten four by four envelope? It's been a long time. And I should say that probably the last time I got one kind of looked like it was handwritten. And then you kind of look a little closer and you go, ah, this is a photocopier. This is yeah. printed to make it look like a handwritten note, but it's not real. And then you throw it in the trash with everything else. You do throw it in the trash. And there's the key. If you're going to do a handwritten note, do a handwritten note. Don't cut. You know, you're wasting your own time. It isn't going to be opened. But the last time you got a handwritten uh, letter was either a birthday card, a Christmas card, or an invite somewhere. Okay? You certainly didn't get a handwritten note for your electricity bill. Okay? <laughs> so in which case, in you, you have a trigger that when you get a handwritten note, not with a postage mark, but with an actual stamp, that it came from someone that you knew, 
that you were connected with. And believe it or not, you get excited. It's like now the people every day, we get packages delivered to us by Amazon. Okay. How excited are you when you run down to your door every day and you pick up your Amazon packages? You're excited because the last time you opened up a box was Christmas or your birthday. Now, we know it's toilet roll and shavers because we ordered the bloody thing. But have you noticed how excited people are about getting those boxes? It's the exact same thing with the, with the notes. I'm trying to create an emotion. I'm trying to create a trigger. So I work on triggers that you already have. I'll send you a box. I'll send you an envelope. I will send you a letter. Things that you knew were real, real fun when you used to get them. I can't send out a million like you can a tweet or an email. So I send out 10 or 40. But you know what I did a little while ago? And people can see this. I have a Facebook group called An Entrepreneur's Advantage. And I actually posted about this in there. I sent out 250 Christmas cards. In the Christmas card had a QR code that I told them to hover their phone over. And I wished them Merry Christmas and then told them why I had sent them the Christmas card and went into it about the triggers. Now, I sent out 250 Christmas cards. We had, I don't know what the open rate of a letter was, but I do know how many unique visitors went to that barcode, okay? It was about 2,000. (laughs) Now, I'd only sent out 250 cards, so how come 2,000 people went to this barcode? I didn't promote it anywhere else. What they did was they hovered their phone over it and then they phoned their mate. You're not going to believe what Steve Sims did. Look at this. Oh, while you're looking at it, scan this barcode. My ROI, if you want to get analytical, was 250 cheap Christmas cards because I bought them in summer. Hmm. That's a good return on investment. Yeah, I created triggers. I had people contact, literally, I had people contact me, buy into Sims Distillery, join the Facebook group, get anything from me going, we want someone in our world that does things differently. I want, and someone actually said this to me, I want to be cool enough to get a Christmas card. All I've done was send out, and they contacted me and they went, hey, I want to join. I want to be cool enough to get a Christmas card. And it was the funniest thing in the world to actually see that. Do something that's a little bit daring. Do something that's a little bit different. But if everyone is on Twitter, get off. If everyone's on TikTok, you missed your window. So try and do something that's different. For the listener who's sitting there saying, Steve, I'm in. I love this. I want to start thinking bigger. Start not saying no to those dreams and goals and hopes and wishes and visions that I've had in my head before. I'm going to start saying yes and start moving down that path towards taking bigger steps in my life. What's an action item? What's something that they can do, let's say in the next 24 to 48 hours to start adopting this mindset and start moving towards a a life like this? You're going to find this the funniest answer. Well, you may not, but it's still funny. Change your radio station, okay? You need to build up habits in your head that you're willing to accept something that's different. Change the radio station to one that you haven't heard, okay? If you end up landing on like a a Hispanic radio station, leave it for an hour, okay? Listen to the music, listen to the tone, listen to the voice. When you go out that night and you order food, pick something off of the appetizer menu 
that you've never heard of before. This is what I call low-risk habit forms. Mm. The funniest one is when you go and order sushi, there's something on that menu that, A, you can't even pronounce, and you have no idea what it is, but it's like five bucks. And the dumb thing is when we go into a restaurant, I would go in there and I'd say to my kids, right, what looks scary? And we would pick one item, which we've never heard of, just for the table. We've had some amazing success with these things. We've gone, wow. We've ordered some stuff that we go, oh, my God, how come that is a food group? That should be banned. You know, it's disgusting. But we've trained our mind to accept change. Now, when we go into a restaurant, even if I go into like a bloody McDonald's, one of my kids will turn around and go, oh, we can't order something crazy here. You know, because it's already become a habit that we go in and we do it. I was at home the other day and I hit random. I have a, an online radio thing. I think it's called My Radio or iRadio. I don't know what it's called. And I just like, just literally, stupidly, just hit little buttons on my mouse. And it came up with Norwegian EDM, electronic dance music. <laughs> now, I listened to it for an hour. Now, in Norway, at the time of me, me listening, it was like one o'clock in the morning. So it was full depth, high octane EDM music from Northern Europe. Okay. Now I can tell you, because I'm now educated, that this is the worst music known to mankind. But I can only tell you that because I suffered it for an hour. Otherwise, I'd have never known. So just try low, low. Now, none of those things that I've given you are going to hurt your bank account. None of those things are going to um, damage you in any way whatsoever. But if you drive one way to work, take the left before you get to work and then come around the back way. Try getting your head into a habit of doing things and more importantly, seeing things differently. Yeah. Train your mind to accept change. Love that. Steve, a uh, lot of value out of this conversation for the listeners who want to find you, follow you, buy your book, etc. Where do they go? Well, you can go to stevedsims.com. Only one M in Sims. Steve D for dashing sims.com. Uh, you can find out all about the book and the courses, Sims Distillery and all that kind of stuff there. But I, I want to give you something for free. If you join an entrepreneur's advantage with Steve Sims, I do loads of postings in there. I talk about the things that work. I talk about the things that don't work. And we have a very active community. I think it's about 2,000 people in there now. But it's free of charge. So come and hang with people that actually want to support each other and do something different. Excellent. And for the listeners, I'll have all the links there, links to his website, links to that Facebook group, everything in the action plan. You can go to jimharshawjr.com slash action and uh, download the PDF action plan from this episode. Steve, man, what a great conversation. Thanks for making time. Thanks, buddy. See you around. And for the listeners, as always, until next time, take the time to get clear on your goals and embrace failure as a stepping stone on your path to success. Thank you.